0: You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And today I'm talking about pediatric chronic pain and the comfortability program. Joining me, I have two guests today, Dr. Jessica Collins and Dr. Christina Holbein. Dr. Jessica Collins is a psychologist in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at CHOP. Welcome, Dr. Collins. Thank you. And Dr. Holbein is a psychologist with the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition and the Center for Inflammatory bowel Disease, also at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome, Dr. Holbein. Hi, so glad to join you today. Well, thank you both for being here. and as I mentioned, we're talking about chronic pain, so as way of introduction, One in four children will have an episode of chronic pain, which is lasting three months or more, before they reach adulthood. This includes things like headache, abdominal pain, musculoskeletal pain, and neuropathic pain. We all know the impact that chronic pain can have on both the individual and the family. In addition to actually experiencing the pain or discomfort itself, 80% of kids struggle with sleeping and 50% struggle with school attendance. What this means for families is that many caregivers are having to miss work, they may have reduced income, or have challenges with managing the other siblings at home, and often this can leave them feeling alienated in this part of parenting. So Dr. Collins, to start us off, I'm wondering, what are some of the common diagnoses where patients often have chronic pain and discomfort? Yeah, this is such a great question
1: and one we get a lot. There are many diagnoses where pain and discomfort are symptoms of having a chronic illness, such as arthritis, sickle cell, or inflammatory bowel disease. But we also know that kids hurt from non-disease-related pain, such as when they experience headache, backaches, or nerve pain. Regardless of the reason for the pain, we know that kids with any type of ongoing pain and discomfort are three times more likely as kids without pain to develop anxiety or depression.
0: Three times, that's really significant. So, Dr. Holben, can you tell us more about the connection between feelings or emotions and the physical symptoms or discomfort, such as pain?
2: Sure. This is really one of my favorite topics and something I talk about with a lot of children and families. And as psychologists, we frequently explain to families how the brain and body are connected. So, you know, we use many everyday phrases about the mind-body connection without even realizing it, like butterflies in my stomach or when on gut instinct. And this connection is most evident when you're uncomfortable physically or emotionally. So we know that stress or intense emotions can make pain or discomfort worse. And on the flip side, pain or discomfort can also increase stress or lead to frustration, anxiety, or sadness. So when you're uncomfortable, like when you have pain, your body responds in certain ways to the psychological aspects of that discomfort. And these responses are noticeable physiological changes, such as changes in sleep, energy, or appetite. It might also respond in ways like muscle tension, nausea, dizziness, or increased heart rate. Chronic pain and discomfort is like a central nervous system glitch. And to reset this glitch, it's really necessary to address these psychological or emotional correlates like stress, anxiety, and frustration, and to learn some mind-body tools to improve that mind-body
0: connection. Thank you so much for bringing up that mind-body connection. It's so important. And as you mentioned, it's something that we use anecdotally all the time, but we don't actually think about the meaning behind what we're saying there. So another thing that I'm wondering about is how might the reporting of pain and discomfort from physical symptoms differ based on culture or race? I can imagine that this is something that is part of how we're brought up and that that may vary based on culture or race. Am I right about that? Yeah, you are absolutely right. Pain management is an area
1: where racial and ethnic disparities are very well documented and persist. Differences exist in the reporting of physical symptoms based on culture, race. For example, Black patients in primary care are more likely to identify and describe the physical symptoms related to a mental health problem, but that often leads to a misdiagnosis. We also know that reporting of pain and discomfort can be related to poor communication between providers and patients, such as when there's a language barrier. So, for example, research has shown that Hispanic patients report higher levels of physical symptoms than non-Hispanic patients. This is true even when the levels of anxiety were not found to be any different. But within the Hispanic sample, they also found that physical symptom levels were higher only among those when they were evaluated in Spanish. So there's something about the language barrier there that leads to differences in reporting. Hispanics who spoke English showed no significant differences in reporting of physical symptoms versus the non-Hispanic population. Similarly, the research has also shown that both Asian and Hispanic respondents endorse significantly less medically unexplained physical symptoms when compared to their non-Hispanic white counterparts. Because we know these differences in the reporting of pain and physical symptom exist and are strongly influenced by race and cultural factors, it's even more important that we as providers are aware of how this may impact diagnoses and treatment of chronic pain.
0: It also really highlights what we're doing with some of our diversity, equity, and inclusion work to recruit diverse workforces, including psychologists and other medical providers as you mentioned, you know, having language proficiency that matches our patient population can be really important in terms of getting an accurate history and ultimately leading to a correct diagnosis.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So when talking about chronic pain, it sounds like it's really important that we as providers consider our own biases. So how do you see bias impacting referrals of patients for pain management, and what can we do as providers to try to avoid these biases? You're so right about that. You know,
2: bias has been found to impact diagnosis, our treatment recommendations, and even the number of questions or tests that we might ask or order for youth with pain. And being a member of a minoritized group, having limited English proficiency and low health and digital literacy are factors that we know are associated with poor patient-clinician communication and care. However, that patient-clinician communication is an excellent target for intervention to decrease some of these health disparities and to address some of this bias. I think one of the first things that we really need to think about is that awareness and having that awareness that we all have biases is such a key so that we can start to offer more equitable care. And so to improve some of these health disparities, it's really important for clinicians to continue to build strong communication skills and make some efforts to improve their cultural competency and build awareness of their unconscious biases. Many hospitals and professional associations offer excellent trainings and workshops to support this growth as well. You know, another thing I think that we really want to be considering and you know within our clinic settings is offering a set of standard recommendations, like always including information about our comfortability workshop in a child's after-visit summary, regardless of their race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and so on. And you know, secondly, I think if we expect that a patient or a family has barriers to accessing pain management resources or treatments. It's really not acceptable to simply not offer those resources. I think we really need to identify ways to support families in overcoming those barriers. And, you know, clinic can be really busy. That can seem like a tall order, but, you know, this might include coordinating with our medical social workers or a case manager or working with other multidisciplinary team members or community supports to problem solve to figure out how we can help them access those pain management resources and interventions.
0: So important. We have talked about standardization as a way of overcoming some of our biases as being really important. You highlight that here again, that we should have a standard approach and make those recommendations. Now, Dr. Holbein talked a little bit about and hinted at interventions for the management of chronic pain. Dr. Collins, I'm wondering, what are the evidence-based interventions for the management of chronic pain in pediatrics? So, a
1: common analogy used to explain chronic pain treatment is to imagine it's a tricycle with three flat tires. So, in order to get the child who's experiencing pain or discomfort going again, we really need treatments that can fill each tire. So, we might fill one tire with medication, one tire with physical or occupational therapy, and one tire with psychological treatments, The psychologically-based interventions such as mindfulness, relaxation, biofeedback, and cognitive behavioral skills are research-proven to help children reduce pain intensity and can also ease pain-related psychological stress. More importantly, these interventions also have no side effects and are known to boost mood, reduce anxiety, and improve feelings of self-efficacy. In combination with effective medications and a well-balanced return to activity, psychological therapies are a key part of an effective recovery from chronic pain. I also want to mention the parent-focused intervention is an important piece of treatment when treating children. Families often embark on a long journey to find their solutions for their child's pain, so education and evidence-based skills training are just as essential for the parents and caregivers to help support their child's progress.
0: Yes, we love interventions that include parents. And as you mentioned, they are such an important part of healing in all aspects of care, but in pain as well. So can you give us some examples of the range of subspecialty clinics at CHOP where pain management and physical symptoms are a focus? Sure.
2: So the truth is that children with chronic pain are seen in all areas of the medical system, the emergency department, inpatient side, specialty clinics, and primary care. But we know that some clinics or subspecialties have some specific multidisciplinary services for youth with chronic pain and discomfort. So at CHOP, some of these clinics focused on further assessing and treating pain and discomfort include our chronic pain clinic, the Acquired Autonomic Dysfunction Program or AADP, the Amplified Musculoskeletal Pain Program or AMPS, our headache clinic, concussion clinic, sickle cell clinic, and the Division of Gastroenterology.
0: Dr. Collins, you mentioned that tricycle analogy before, and Dr. Holbein just talked about how the management of pain is multidisciplinary. And while we talked a lot about psychological interventions, including CBT just now, we also acknowledged the role of medication and things like physical therapy and occupational therapy being important pieces of many treatment plans. So Dr. Collins, I'm wondering if you can describe a little bit the team-based approach that you're using in the clinics we just talked about.
1: Yeah. So in all of these multidisciplinary clinics, there's a medical provider, such as a physician or a nurse practitioner and a psychologist conducting a comprehensive assessment to provide treatment recommendations. When a patient's presenting with pain, we always want to feel confident that we've thoroughly examined and assessed the patient for any acute medical concerns which may be contributing to the patient's experience of pain. However, when pain or the discomfort has been present for longer than three months and thereby defined as chronic, oftentimes chronic pain itself becomes the working diagnoses used to guide treatment. The best practice and evidence-based approach to treatment really focuses on further understanding the mind-body connection with counseling and engagement in functional activity. For some youth with chronic pain, the team may recommend physical therapy, which may be accomplished through CHOP or at a local physical therapy provider.
0: And we mentioned that patient and caregiver education is a huge piece of the treatment plan here. So can you tell us about the ComfortAbility program?
1: Yeah, the ComfortAbility program was originally created by a pain psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital. They had such encouraging results that they have trained over 20 other sites through the United States, Canada, and Australia to offer the program. We've been proud to partner with them and to offer ComfortAbility here at CHOP since 2020. The mission of a ComfortAbility program is to help kids, teens, parents, or caregivers learn how to better manage chronic pain problems such as headache, abdominal pain, nerve pain, joint pain, disease-related pain, post-surgical pain, or really any other kind of ongoing pain and discomfort. The program is grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy and teaches families how pain works in the body and why the skills rooted in psychology can be helpful. It also gives kids and parents the chance to learn and practice many research-proven coping skills based in cognitive behavioral therapy. The larger ComfortAbility program offers workshops, health chats through the social media platforms, newsletters, and a variety of other resources for teens and families.
0: The group approach makes the ComfortAbility program really different than many of the other psychological treatments providers and families may be aware of. How have you seen the group approach make an impact?
2: So in our work with individual youth and families, we hear a lot that living with chronic pain and discomfort is a really isolating experience. And so for most people, chronic pain is invisible. So, you know, others can't see that they're hurting. And even though pediatric chronic pain is so common, many of the youth that we work with have never met another kid who has pain, or at least they don't realize it. And so the group approach allows kids and teens and parents to see that they're not alone and that other people can relate to many of their challenges and experiences. Plus, we see a lot of kids and caregivers offer recommendations to each other in the group format, and so it gives them this great chance to use their personal experiences to help others. We really feel that the group approach is also beneficial because it allows us as providers to reach more kids with chronic pain and discomfort in their families than we can if we just offer individual treatment alone. And so with many families struggling to access mental health services right now, this is more important than ever.
0: That's a great point. And yeah, the invisible nature of pain can make it really isolating. So I can imagine being a part of a group and having access to all of these resources can be so important and valuable to our patients and their families. Dr. Collins, what's one of your favorite parts of being part of the ComfortAbility program team? Yeah, honestly, there's so many great parts of the program that I enjoy. But I
1: think my favorite is these light bulb moments that you see happening, particularly with the parent and the caregiver group. Working with parents and caregivers is not something that we routinely do in individual therapy. And so I love working with this group because I don't get to do it that often so many of these caregivers have spent months or even years searching for explanations as to why their children are so uncomfortable they've tried so many different treatments and therapies and medications to help their children feel better in order to live the life that they imagine their child would be living when these caregivers are given the education about how pain functions in the body how the mind and body are connected When they are taught different ways to communicate and support their child and they learn all of these psychologically based interventions and see the result in the physical and chemical changes in the brain and body, you can see this weight lift off their shoulders while they're in the group. You can almost imagine They begin to breathe a little deeper, and you can see feelings of hope brightening in their faces. They often leave the workshop reporting that they feel understood and hopeful that their child will feel better and that tomorrow
0: will be different and that their lives will improve. And Dr. Holbein, what's one of your favorite parts about being a part of the ComfortAbility program?
2: You know, like Dr. Collins, I have a lot of things I enjoy about the program. You know, I was talking about the group format earlier, and I think that's one of my favorite aspects In my day-to-day work, I see kids or teens individually, and so I really love the chance to see kids interacting together during comfortability. It's really fun for me to see how unique each group is based on who participates. And so, you know, the content of the workshop is pretty standard, you know, every time that we offer the program, but every group feels really different and special. It's great to see the kids connecting, too. So, You know, often as people are getting to know each other, it's just starting with some head nods and, you know, you can tell that people are thinking, I've been there, I know what you mean. And then as the kids get to know each other, they often end up giving some really great suggestions for their favorite coping strategies or mobile relaxation apps and things like that. And they offer some really supportive comments to the rest of the group. And I think that this peer connection and support is really powerful, and it isn't something that I get to offer working one-on-one with patients and families.
0: Well, it's really lovely to hear both of you speak so passionately about this program. It sounds like it is a very rewarding experience for you as providers, but also obviously very powerful for our patients and their families. What are the three key messages, though, that we need to get out to the public?
1: First, we really need to destigmatize the role of psychology in pediatric pain treatment by educating others that cognitive behavioral therapy interventions are a first line treatment for chronic pain and pain related stress, and that this does not imply that pain is a psychological problem. In the research literature, psychological strategies are broadly accepted as an effective pain management treatment. However, this key concept has not been well translated into routine practice. Second, we need to create greater access to first-line evidence-based psychological services that are central to the management of pain and recovery. Integration of these services into the community plus education of patients and providers regarding the benefits of these services early in a child's experience of pain will be needed. And lastly, we need to educate and empower parents and caregivers. Though the research literature demonstrates that active parent involvement improves all child outcomes, there remains limited access to targeted parent education, and parents and caregivers are often confused about how best to help their child.
0: Thank you for those three key messages. And I think we're helping a little bit with that education piece, hopefully, with this podcast. So the next time I see a patient in my office with chronic pain or discomfort, what should I do first? So
2: historically, there was a dichotomy. It's either, you know, real pain or a psychological problem. And, you know, we often have kids or teens coming to our clinic saying that they've heard the message that their pain is all in their head. And we know that that is just an outdated way of thinking these days. And so what we want providers to be seeing instead is your pain is real. Pain is a protective function of the nervous system. We know a lot about how to treat chronic pain. We're very hopeful that this will improve. And the tools and skills that come from psychology are an important part of the recovery. So chronic pain is one of the most common and expensive problems in pediatrics. And we know that psychological strategies are an integral part of treatment, and they need to be worked into the care pathway of kids with pain. So integration of these skills early in a child's experience of pain may meaningfully shift the outcomes and reduce disability and reduce risk for a long-term transmission.
0: And so for those who are listening and are local to CHOP or who have patients willing to travel to CHOP, how can we refer them to you?
1: Yeah. So if you're listening and you're interested in learning more about the Comfortability Program, including how to sign up for a workshop here at CHOP, you can check out the program's website at www.thecomfortability.com. It's all one word. And as a provider, seeing children and youth with chronic pain and discomfort, we recommend that you reach out directly to one of those subspecialty clinics that you feel may be the best to determine if the child is an appropriate fit for their service and to learn more about specific referral processes.
0: Well, thank you both so much. We've learned a lot during this episode. Um, particularly about destigmatizing the role of psychology in pediatric pain and creating more access to first line evidence based psychological services, such as those that we have at CHOP, things like the comfortability program, and the need for educating parents and their caregivers. And thank you for giving us some language about how to talk to our patients about pain and for resources that we can refer our patients to. And we appreciate having psychologists like you, and we know there are many more just like you embedded in programs across CHOP, and we are so grateful to have your support. So thank you for the education today and for caring for our patients. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, that was great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes, or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.